Well, I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Luke, chapter 16. We're going to begin reading in verse 10. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is our custom. I invite you to follow along as I read Luke, chapter 16, beginning verse 10 through verse 18. God's Word says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteousness of mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. All right, well, we are in Luke chapter 16, and we're going to pick up by backing up um, into last week's sermon a little bit to get a running start at this week. Um, we're coming into a portion of Scripture that would almost seem to be disassociated from what came prior, uh, to the point that some people have just said they just Luke just kind of randomly throws a few statements that Christ said in here, and I don't see it that way. And I don't believe that uh, God's Word is written very randomly. Um, but I do think that there is, uh, when we consider the audience involved, some very uh, important truths being communicated here. I want to back up into the passage last week as we completed and spoke of the parable of the unjust steward. Um, to my dismay, I went home. My wife said, it's still hard for me to understand. And uh, so I need to back up a little bit and just, again, communicate. The unjust steward, we are not focusing on his unjustness, but on his, the way the world is able to understand that when something becomes temporary and we recognize that it needs to be uh, dealt with in such a fashion to prepare us for the future, that it changes how we approach that thing or those things. And so the unjust steward was had his stewardship about to be taken away, recognizing its temporality, that it was going to be only a short time still under his control. He needed to adjust his thinking towards it. Once his thinking started to adjust towards it, and now he's thinking about it not as something that's always going to be his, but rather something that's only going to be short for a short time his, he used it prepare for his future. How he used that is not being extolled by Christ. But what he's trying to demonstrate to us is that even the world understands that if you have temporal goods, 
and a long-term future, which one takes priority? The long-term future. And you'll manipulate and use your temporary goods differently once you understand that they are temporary, that they are fleeting, that they are soon to be out of your hands, that you must be active with them toward a different purpose or different conclusion. And so the unjust steward, unjustness is not what this is about, being unjust. And so Christ seeks to demonstrate this by talking about the sons of this world being more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. That we need to take a lesson from the world in this sense. That the way they view material things and their earthly future, that they can invest some today and have uh, and miss out a little bit today so that they could have a lot tomorrow, we need to think about in terms of eternity. That we understand all of what is today as temporary and that we invest in it and deal with it differently than others because we have an eternal future that we are planning for. And so the unjust steward is not preparing for his eternal future. He's preparing for his future on the other side of his stewardship. And so he treated differently the goods when he understood that they were going to be taken away from him in a short order. And so we are called upon in verse 9, which I didn't really discuss last week at all, um, that we are to use our unrighteous mammon. It says to make friends for yourselves. And then the statement says that when you fail, and that can be variously interpreted or variously translated, I should say, variously translated um, of what is failing, whether it's you failing or whether it is the things that you are uh, using to make friends with fail, uh, that when basically things run out, when everything runs out and we come to the end, what do we have left? Uh, We're not talking about things of this earth, but it says that they may receive you into an everlasting home. That somehow we can take uh, a temporary evil like money, use it in such a way that it will produce for us eternal value. And that's what we sought to bring out last week. That we take a, a basic understanding of everything of this world as temporary, as just running through our fingers so fast that we recognize a need to do something different than the world does with it because we have some eternal things we are trying to accomplish while still in this life. And so with eternity in view, we deal differently with our money. With eternity in view, we deal differently with our relationships. With eternity in view, we deal differently with every resource that we have, with our time, with our energies, with our talents, everything we deal differently than the world. And this is going to be brought out even more strongly in our passage this morning. And so we are looking to be received into an everlasting home. This is requiring of us that we be faithful with what God has entrusted to us, recognizing that at the judgment, at the great audit of life, the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, the great white throne for the unbeliever, that there is going to be an examination of our stewardship of this life. That based upon that examination, we will or we will not receive something of our own for all eternity. 
When we talk about the rewards or the uh, crowns that are granted to us, the white robes that we are uh, clothed with, and we, we look at all the description of these things that are given to the Christian, we understand that these are our tools that we will use to worship Christ for all eternity. Um, that the tools we have today are not our own. They're, they're God's. And when we get into that context, Christ said, these are yours. You have been faithful in much or in little, will be given much. You have been faithless, will be given nothing. And what you have is going to be taken away and given to another. And thus our stewardship has this requirement that we are faithful in these things that are temporary, that are really not our own, that we have only limited control over, so that we can, in eternity future, be committed with true riches. That will require a single-heartedness on our part. And this becomes the rub. A single-heartedness. You cannot be bilateral in your approach to this. You cannot say, well, I'm going to deal with my money according to the wisdom of this world, but I'm going to deal with the rest of my life according to the wisdom of God. You cannot be. Nor can it be that bilateral in any other way. You cannot deal two different ways with any aspect of your life, for they are all part of your stewardship. Your accounting, your audit will engage all your life. Every facet of it. And so we cannot, uh, and whether it's God or money, whether it's God or family, whether it's God or fill in the blank, we cannot have such duality in our heart. This is the very thing that Israel was condemned for over and, and in fact, if there's any pinnacle thing that sent Israel into captivity, it was this, that they serve God and the gods of the nations. That little word and made them an adulterous nation. It made them unfaithful. And the word faithful here cannot be separated from that concept. That you can't claim to be a faithful husband if you are, well, I'm faithfully in love with my wife and this other woman. Any of you wives satisfied with that definition of faithfulness? Didn't think so. For the record, those on our podcast, nobody raised their hand of our women. <clears throat> and yet we are willing not only to tolerate it, but to... Shrug our shoulders as if, well, that's just the way men are. It's okay in the spiritual realm to have two gods. And this is exactly the condition of some secondary listeners to Christ's parable of the unjust steward. Remember that he had spoken to the Pharisees, the, the, the wealthy who invited him to dinner. He had gone out and engaged the crowd uh, and then after engaging the crowd, he had taken his disciples aside separately. And that kind of is the way the conversation has gone through chapter 15, now chapter 16. So we went from the Pharisees and those who invited him in to the meal. 
to the multitude, to just his disciples. But while he's talking to his disciples, there's some eavesdroppers. There's some who are listening in. The message wasn't for them. The message was for the disciples. But they overheard it. And by overhearing it, they came to this conclusion. That they were the target of it, and so they would target Christ. This is they scoffed him. They derided him. They wanted to negate what he had just said. You can't serve God and money. Well, let us explain how that works. And they were the way they knew that they were lovers of money, and apparently so did everyone else. And so they took it to heart. They understood that what he said was against them. He wasn't speaking to them, though. Notice that. He was speaking to his disciples, warning them, don't be like them. <laughs> so they're over there going, what do you mean don't be like us? And so it's a secondary attack, really, upon them. It's not directed at them. It's really directed at the disciples, warning them against that. And so they derided him, and Christ is not going to allow that to stand. He knows, and we know the content of their scoffing by his response. He says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. What was it that they were doing? They were justifying, that is, they were saying that our behavior and our divided heart has good reason, good cause. After all, we are handling our money the way the world handles the money, and we are rich because we use it to serve God with, after all. Sound familiar? And after all, nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's a sin to be rich, does it? I'm trying to think of other phrases that I've heard and read from the Christian community trying to exonerate us from the guilt of decadence. The fact is we still believe that the reason we have so much is because we're so good. We still have that, even while we, we don't want to verbalize it, we still have that attitude inside of us. Poor, bad, rich, or good. And that's not something unique to America. It's not unique to this generation. It was way back then. The Pharisees had that concept. Poor, bad, rich, or good. Job's friends had that concept thousands of years before Christ. Rich or good, poor or bad. If the poor weren't bad, they wouldn't be poor. Certainly. And so we have the rationalization, this justification that, of, of, that it's okay for us and we give lots of excuses why it's okay for us to be rich. And in fact, we walk around and we have a great saying even for why it's okay for us to be rich is because God's blessed America. It's God's fault anyway. And so since God's blessed us this way, then we can't speak against it. This is the kind of speech the Pharisees would have used. This is the kind of thinking that lovers of money use. If I use my money 
not quite as decadently as the super wealthy, God will be pleased. You see, we seek to justify ourselves before men as well. After all, I give 10%. You do realize that most of the world lives lives on less than your 10% annually. Think about that for a little bit. What that means is that we are living on nine times what the rest of the world is living on. Because we're living on 90%. And we're applauding ourselves for that. We're the good people. We're the ones that give. Now, what those miserable people out there, the stingy people that don't give to anything, living on 110% of what they make, apparently, with credit cards, you can do that. Not for long, but you can do that. We applaud ourselves. Christ says, you see, it's easy to justify yourself before men. From a man's perspective, the fact that you live on 90% of your income instead of 110%, wow, I'm really impressed by that. It's easy to impress men. God has a different standard. And he comes to us and he says, stop justifying yourselves. God knows your heart. What is it that is in our heart that God knows? What was in the Pharisee's heart that God knew that the Pharisees weren't willing to recognize? What is it that we need to be warned of with such a parable as the parable of the unjust steward? What is it that we need to carefully examine our hearts about to make sure it's not there just as the warning of Christ stands clearly? Beware that you do not give room for this secondary God in your life. What is it? It is this. That we begin esteeming what men, other men, esteem. This is the phrase. What, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Whoa. I don't know if you just understood the significance of what Christ just said. The word abomination is a very strong word. It is among the things that God hates. Abominations are things that God destroyed people for. Abominations brought fire and brimstone upon a city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abominations are what ended up destroying Israel and led them off captive. These abominations are those things that God hates. He says, if you want to know what kinds of things God hates, all you have to look around is at the world and say, what do they esteem? And you'll know what God hates. When we look out into our world and we say, what does our world esteem? What is it that they uh, lift up as being Worth, uh, worth high value. says, what is highly esteemed among men. What are these things? Power, wealth, fame, control. What is it that men esteem so highly? Look at the kind of men that we esteem. We esteem those kind of men. 
And God says, I don't look on them highly. They're abominable to me. They are the ones I would begin judgment with is them. It is no mistaking as we go through the prophets and the minor, both the major and minor prophets, the, the class of society that they take to task over and over again is not the middle class, it's not really the low class. It is over and over again that top percent, the wealthy and powerful, the well-known, the educated, the insiders. These are the ones that the prophets take to task over and over again and said, our whole society is being ruined by you and your evil. And these are the ones, this top layer is what we think everyone should aspire to. You should aspire to them. These are the ones we lift up as heroes, as people, as models. And in the Christian community, we fall in line with that. We have this idea that that um, the ones we want to put forward as the spokespeople for Christianity are those who have gotten to that level that the world would respect them because of their ability to throw a inflated piece of pigskin across a field. It makes them the best spokespeople for our faith. They have achieved a certain success. Because they can achieve it on a ball field, they achieve it financially, and therefore they're the experts. They're the ones we need to listen to. They're the ones who can really make a difference. God says, what men highly esteem, I find abominable. You've heard me in the past regularly talk about my appreciation for one radio program that rehearses not the highly esteemed, but the lowest of the dregs of society in their testimonies, Pacific Garden Mission. What a powerful impact it had upon a generation of people there in Chicago. Some of them did become better known to people. Their testimonies were powerful. They were perhaps the best representations of the work of God in men's lives, what God can do. You see, when we begin to take what the world says is good and right and exalted, and we begin to try to impress the world by its standards, there's someone else we've left out of the equation that we are not impressing, but angering. And that's God himself. We are in Christian circles today on very thin ice. And we are oblivious to it as it cracks below us. We go to the world 
find out what they esteem and highly esteem, try to replicate it in our church, try to replicate it in our lives, and we think that somehow if we acquire what the world says is success, that we are then blessed by God. You haven't begun with God, you haven't gone with God, and you haven't ended with God. Why do you think God's blessing is involved at all? What is it that is esteemed in the sight of God? Justice is esteemed in the sight of God. Righteousness is esteemed in the sight of God. These are not the patterns of our world. These are in antithesis to our world. Purity, truth. We could go on and on. And we recognize that the world fights against these things. And yet we don't fight against the world. This was the condition of the Pharisees in Jesus' time and is the condition of much of the church in our time. The question is, is the condition of our hearts today? This is the heart that God looks into. Are you divided? Or do we really believe that we need to look to God's Word to discern what it is that He wants us to give ourselves to entirely and then walk in such a way. The Pharisees were deriding the radicalness of Christ's statement. And so Christ turns to them with this statement in verse 16. Listen, the law and the prophets... We're until John. They had a very specific purpose, a purpose that largely didn't go the way God really wanted it to go. He wanted them all to repent. The Old Testament, it was until John. That was a period of time. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. A time of repentance has been preached unlike ever before, and people are, and a very interesting word here, are pressing into it. And the idea there is that they are doing violence to get in. It's almost like they um, getting trampled trying to get into a narrow gate. And Christ says, here we are in a time frame where people are willing to do injury to themselves to get into the kingdom of God. They're willing to do the radical things that I'm calling them to do to get into the kingdom of God. And here you are deriding them and deriding that gate, that way, that one who is the way to life, Jesus Christ. This is the end result of a divided allegiance, of a divided heart that we think we can serve both God and mammon, is that we come to the same place of we look down upon those who want to serve God with all their heart, and we end up milling around the front of the gate and never pressing to get in. It's never urgent. These individuals that Christ is describing understood the urgency. They didn't want to miss the kingdom of heaven. They didn't want to miss it. And it would take whatever drastic measures were needed to make sure that they made it into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that we would have such a thinking in our minds 
that there is a, a dramatic nature, that, that a dramatic activity that needs to be engaged upon by our part to be assured of the kingdom of heaven. But no, we are sure. I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was 10. I'm okay. Instead of understanding what Christ is communicating here of what He expects out of those who are going to be members of His kingdom, that we do this radical work in our life to press into the kingdom of heaven. That's the general scene that He paints. Here's the general scene that you all are missing. Here's what the multitude were doing in Jesus' day. Here's what the people who were following Christ were doing. They were, they, were, they were willing to engage themselves in this radical call to a whole different kind of living that went in antithesis to all that the world esteemed and lifted up, and they were willing to live that kind of life with pressing urgency so they wouldn't miss the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me turn my attention to where you are, Pharisees. Christ is going to go on. You claim the law. I've already told you the law has come to its completion. Now, you claim the law. Let's see where the law takes you. First of all, the law won't fail. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. The law that you so carefully cling to, I'm not saying it's going to be destroyed. It will not fail. Not the smallest part of that law. He talks about a tittle, and you all are pretty familiar with the tittle. It looks like um, the middle of this. Uh, I should hold that properly for you, not upside down. That's a Hebrew letter. The tittle is this part right in here. That little dot right in the middle. Won't pass. Won't fail. You remember these little magnets, right, of letters that you put on your refrigerator when you were growing up? So you learn the alphabet. This is a Hebrew alphabet magnet. I don't know what letter it is because I don't know. My Hebrew is very bad. I'm still at this level. I'm still putting little magnets on my thing so I can learn the letters. Christ says, even the smallest little thing is not going to fail. The law will not fail. In fact, let's see what you've done to the law. People are doing these dramatic acts to make sure they get into the kingdom of heaven. They are allowing this radical ripping apart so that they're, the, this false gods are out of their life and they're wholeheartedly Christ. And if you think that that is not a violent act, it is. For the worldliness, the world and the love of the world is ingrained in you. It has been from your parents on. It has been ingrained in you by all society around you. And hence when John talks about if anyone loved the world, love of the Father is not in him. We, we don't look at that and say, oh yeah, of course. We go, oh wow, how do I make the love of God only in my heart? By radical measures. Now, the Pharisees who claim to have the law... And Christ is going to use the law on them. To a degree, he pulls out one law. Let's look at one law. Let's just take one law. 
The law won't pass away. It's not, it's not failing, but it has completed its purposes in terms of pointing out sin. And let me just show how clearly you have missed it. He takes one law, one example. That example is in the area of divorce. Now, before we read what Jesus had to say about the law and divorce, let me share with you a little bit of what the rabbis taught about divorce. One of the things that they found out in their study of the law was that a man could could divorce his wife um, for nearly any and every reason. One rabbi taught that if your wife was no longer pretty, you could divorce her. That was her grounds. If some other girl was prettier than your wife. Another rabbi taught that if your wife burned your supper, you could divorce her for that. You see, they looked into the law and they read the letters, the little itty-bitty dotted I's and cross T's, and rather than espousing that divorce was wrong, they made every excuse and opportunity for men to divorce their wives. You see, the law did, in fact, allow for divorce. But Christ says that this was due to the hardness of people's hearts, that it wasn't God's best. It was far from it. It was something God hated. And that idea that God hates divorce, you need to connect to the word abomination. This is an abomination to him. though it is highly esteemed among men. What was it that was so highly esteemed? Well, the Pharisees figured it out. They had said, we've studied the law carefully. We are experts in the law. We know every little bit of the law. And we're telling you that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason, no matter how trivial. And we look at it and say, you got that from the law? You think that is what the law was saying? And so Christ here is going to give them the law. Here's what the law was. is that whoever divorces a wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Whoa! What is adultery? That's one of the big ones. Thou shalt not. What has he just said? He said, don't you think in the eyes of God, that that divorce decree means that you are free from the vow that you made to that man or to that woman. Why? Because you are still an adulteress if you violate that vow, even after it's been rescinded by men. It has not been rescinded by God. That's what the law said. It wasn't to support divorce. It was to condemn it. We will allow it. But the fact that the law made no provision for remarriage apart from committing this act of sin was to reinforce that that vow meant that much to God. And instead, because of the divided hearts of the rabbis, they twisted it to mean the opposite of what God meant. God meant 
for one man and one woman to be together till one of them or both of them died. Till death do us part. They are one flesh. That's what God's intent was, and that's what God loves, that's what God esteems, that's what God blesses, that's what God honors, that's what God wants. End of discussion. But you lousy bunch of hard-hearted men, I will permit Moses to write, to authorize him to have you divorce your wives. Because fundamentally in your heart, you don't want what God wants. You want what you want. It was a concession to divided hearts. Hearts that didn't want what God wanted. God said, okay, well, we need to protect the the gal from this situation, so we're going to have some legal means to do that, and Moses can write out writs of divorce um, but under some very stringent rules. The rabbis took that with equal divided hearts, put it on its head, and turned it around. Suddenly, God loves divorce, and He loves you to just love yourself. Sound familiar? God's okay with divorce, and He wants you to love yourself. He wants what you want. And so Christ takes this one example out of the law. He just takes one. He says, you know, God called it adultery. Even if you're divorced to be remarried, He calls it adultery. Why? Because you're still violating that first vow. Even though you have legal right to do that, you don't have divine right to do that. You don't have it. It doesn't exist. I think it's fascinating that I, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can legally marry people and I cannot separate people. I don't have the legal right to do it. Isn't that great? I can't go back to anyone I've married and says, um, now do you untake that person? Yes. Do you untake that person? Yes. Okay, I dissolve this marriage. I can't do it. Not legally. Doesn't make sense, but I can't do it. Thank goodness. I would hate to have people lining up my door to be unmarried. And yet somehow in our the psyche or conscience of our nation, we understand the truth that God hates divorce. And so we're not going to let preachers divorce people. Yet in the Christian community, we have turned it like the rabbis of Jesus' day, like the Pharisees, and we've turned it. Why? Because our hearts aren't where God's heart is. God's heart says, this is my design. This is what is best for you. This is what is going to bring righteousness into your life. This is what's going to bring contentment. This is what's, this is what's going to honor me. And to violate that is going to lead to adultery. 
And so God knew their heart. The rabbis could walk around and espouse divorce for any and every reason, even as God called it abominable, something he hates. This is just one example, friends, of what happens when we come to Christianity with God and something else in our hearts. That we will twist and contort God's Word to mean the very opposite of what its intent was. The law stands as true. It didn't fail. The law didn't fail. Men's hearts failed with respect of the law. For they chose to manipulate it to satisfy their wrong-heartedness. And so the warning to the, fair, to the disciples, we want to be fairly warned again. That we understand that there is a law of God at work that we need to be attentive to in this life that there will be a divine accounting for how we live in accordance with that stewardship of every decision we make. That that accounting will lead to something beyond that. That when we answer to God, there will be either loss or gain as a result. How do we ensure that on the other side of this audit by God of our lives that there is gain and not loss is by examining our hearts on the levels that Christ calls His disciples to do it and by implications calls the Pharisees to do so. Are we one-heartedly gods? Or is there competition we already know there is competition. But is, it given, is, your, is the competition for loyalty to God and His Word, for obeying His, his truth, um, is it sharing a place with something else in your heart? Because if it is, here's how you're going to come to God's Word. Not seeking His truth, not seeking the heart of God, not seeking the mind of God. You're going to come to His truth trying to satisfy what? the second God of your life. Simply by coming to God's Word, you think you've satisfied God, the God half. Now, that you're in God's Word, that makes you a good Christian, right? Now I'm going to make it say what I want it to say to satisfy the other God in my heart. Happens all the time. I read it regularly on social networks like Facebook. I see it in people's writings. Here's a little scripture verse. I'm like, oh my, how are they going to use this? Sure enough. Because I quote scripture, it makes this activity that is obviously serving a different God in my heart than the purposes of God 
We can pull a verse out of context, throw it out there as my life verse, and that life verse is going to drive not righteousness, but unrighteousness. Oh, it's so deceptively (laughs) um, penetrating. And that's why the warning was given to the disciples. Watch out for your heart. Don't let these other things come in and take any kind of place there, whether it be money or whatever. You cannot serve God and blank. You cannot do it. Not God and money, not God and family, not God and and power, not God and self, not God and anything. For the reality is, is that once we share that place with something in addition to God, we will twist God to meet the desires and interests of that something else. The Pharisees had already done it in regards to money. They had already extensively done it with regard to marriage. Marriage and money. One, two, boom, boom. I look at the counseling loads of most pastors, you'll find at the root of them, marriage and money. Why? Because our hearts are divided. We haven't done what God wants with our money. We're not doing what God wants with our marriage. And then we wonder. And they come to me or to another pastor looking for advice, not to rip that other God out of their heart. That's what it means to press into the kingdom of God. To do violence to get in. To do violence to myself to get into the kingdom of heaven. They're not coming to rip that. They're trying to find a scripture verse to substantiate the other God. Just like the rabbis were doing in Jesus' day with regard to divorce. And just as they were doing here with regard to money. There is no Excusing it. A divided heart is an abomination to God. You want to go after the things the world says is esteemed? You go for it. But don't claim that you're serving God while you're chasing the world. Don't do it. Just go chase the world. Don't call it Christian when the world esteems it. You want to know when you're starting to please God is when the world ridicules it. And they do. I was on a site studying the 1920s. Trying to find out a little bit about a world I don't really understand of speakeasies and gambling and things like that. Because I'm ignorant of all those things. And um, when you're trying to find information about gambling terms and things like that, um, you have to go to sites that promote gambling. And a couple of them that were educational sites in about the 20s had this to say about churches. The absurdity of them thinking to force prohibition upon our country and the stupidity of trying to press that for all those years 
that it was the only amendment that was ever rescinded from our Constitution was prohibition. And boy, did they ever ridicule churches. All we did was drive gamblers and drinkers, gamblers and bootleggers together into syndicates and that we were responsible, the church was responsible for the mobs. Surprise. Even to this day, what does the world think of prohibition? It was a fool's errand. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. You see, it was the actions of a generation of Christians with undivided hearts. That's what it was. We said, this can't be honoring to God, and so it shouldn't be in our society. You see, when we begin to really do the work of God and live it, the world will ridicule it. When we see the world esteeming things, red flags, buzzers, warning signs should all be going off in your heart and in your mind and in your family, in our church. Watch out. The world says this is the way it should be done. Watch out. What does God say? If the world highly esteems it, it's an abomination to God. Oh, that would be the drive of our discernment is a verse like this. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Oh God, we do thank You for Your love for us. Lord, we thank You for the power of this truth this morning. Lord, I'm convicted by it. Certain others here are too. We know that the world's values have made multiple inroads into our hearts. Some so subtly that we scarce recognize it. And yet we know what it is that will expose those inroads, and that is Your Word. Honestly read, by heart seeking the mind of God, by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, our prayers, You might find us such people. Lord, let us be numbered among those who are willing to violently, if necessary, rend their hearts to get into the kingdom of heaven. To rip out of themselves all the world's ways, all the world's values, all the world's quote-unquote wisdom and knowledge, falsely so-called. Lord, let us be numbered with them. Embrace ourselves that we might endure the deriding of even other believers for our ways by keeping our eyes stayed upon that divine audit we must each Endure. Praise is in Christ Jesus' name.
Amen.